Hi folks, Travis McMacken here, and welcome back for the third and final part of this little series I'm doing on how I read John Calvin. In the first video, I gave kind of an overview to my approach with Calvin and talked about uh, the time I've spent with Calvin and what I've read of him and when and how and what that process has been. And then, then in the second part, we kind of dug into the first 10 chapters of Calvin's Institutes and talked about the natural knowledge of God. And I talked with you a bit about how I interpret uh, that material. Today, I want to raise a question about Calvin that is something of a tricky one and that gets written about from time to time uh, in Calvin's studies and uh, more popular literature about Calvin as well. And that is the question of whether Calvin has a central doctrine and if he does, what is it? What is that central doctrine? So the idea of having a central doctrine is a typically systematic question. So systematic theologians like to ask this question, not so much the historical theologians and things like that. But the idea is that each thinker, if they're being uh, really systematic, if they're thinking through things carefully, consistently, and coherently, are going to have a doctrine or a set of doctrines that reside at the center of their thought and kind of control the rest of them and control what you say about other things. So uh, it's kind of like having a canon within the canon when you read scripture. And the basic idea is that everybody has one, uh, but it's better to be clear on what that is uh, when you're interpreting so you can get things put in the right order and balanced against each other properly. In uh, traditional Protestant theology, one way that this a discussion of central doctrines has played out is through uh, one of the fun little Latin phrases you learn as you study theology. That phrase is articulus stantis et cadentis ecclesiae. And what that means is uh, you're talking about an article of doctrine on which the church stands or falls. So the basic idea here is that there are some doctrines that if uh, you lose sight of them, if you lose track of them, if you compromise them, uh, you no longer have a Christian church. And this was a question that the Reformers had to ask themselves, and especially the Reforms and Lutheran scholastics in the generation after the Reformers themselves. Which doctrines are the most important and that you have to preserve and take as your center point? Uh, Luther is typically understood as having the doctrine of justification at the heart of his thought, as the doctrine upon which his conception of the church stands or falls. And that's a very famous uh, understanding of Luther. But it's interesting, Luther, uh, as far as I've been able to discover, doesn't ever actually say this. Uh, the first person that I've been able to track down who uh, actually uses this formulation of the Articulus Stantis uh, is Reformed Scholastic Theologian Francis Turretin. Now, this is the second volume <laughs> of his Institutes of Elenctic Theology. And if we turn toward the back of this volume to the 16th topic, uh, the topic of justification, in the first section of the first question, uh, Turretin writes, this is me quoting Turretin, it is called by Luther, quote, the article of a standing and a falling church, end quote. And then he has the Latin in parentheses there. So Turretin seems to be the first one who has said it, but he attributes uh, that position to Luther and takes it to be an accurate representation of Luther's thought. Now, Karl Barth gets into this game of talking about which article the church stands or falls on in uh, the fourth volume of Church Dogmatics, the first part volume. So that's what you see here. And uh, he kind of argues with Luther, trying to figure out exactly uh, which doctrine is this article upon which the church stands or falls. 
And he admits that, and here I'm quoting Bart from page 523, there never was and there never can be any true Christian church without the doctrine of justification. In this sense, it is indeed the articulus stantus et cadentis ecclesiae. But he uh, wants to problematize that a little bit. And in so doing, uh, he talks about Luther, he talks about Calvin, before finally coming to his own conclusion and saying that if here, as everywhere, we allow Christ to be the center, the starting point, the finishing point, we have no reason to fear that there will be any lack. So for Barth, it seems to be the case that he's going uh, beyond just the doctrine of justification as the article on which the church stands or falls, but wanting to put Christology in that mode. And of course, uh, you don't get Christology without soteriology either. So it's a matter of emphasis more than real difference materially. Uh, that second quote was from page 528 in CD44. But what about Calvin? In his discussion, uh, Bart talks about Calvin a bit as well. And of course, uh, in my introduction, I said one or two words about Calvin's relationship to Luther and so on. Uh, so the question is, is it the case that justification is the center of Calvin's theology? And if not, what would possibly be that center? Um, traditionally, in the kind of polemics that go back and forth between Reformed and Lutheran Christians and theologians, uh, on both sides, Calvin's uh, central doctrine has often been seen as the doctrine of predestination. Now, interestingly enough, uh, once again, uh, Bart here has an opinion, go figure, and this time we're looking at CD 2.2, his doctrine of election within the doctrine of God, and Bart says that the doctrine of predestination is not the central doctrine in Calvin's theology. Uh, he writes on page 86, undoubtedly Calvin did not understand or handle the doctrine, his doctrine of predestination or election, as a basic tenet. Bart admits that uh, Calvin takes it very seriously and it's very important for Calvin, uh, but it's not a basic tenet. It's not that kind of central foundational tenet uh, for Calvin that so many people make it out to be. And I think Bart's right about this. Bart goes on to say that it's not the case that you have a, just a basic tenet and then a bunch of stuff that doesn't really matter to you. There's all kinds of ranges in between. He thinks for Calvin, predestination falls in that in-between space. A lot of times, uh, Bart and Bart's students tried to drive a wedge between Calvin and Theodore Beza on this issue. Uh, Beza was the leader of the Genevan Church and Academy after Calvin died, and he was Calvin's protege in a lot of ways. And Beza elevated the doctrine of predestination even further into the center of consciousness for Reformed theology, in part for polemic reasons. They kept having arguments about it, and those arguments began even while Calvin was still alive. And Beza, in his own theology, tends to treat the doctrine of predestination very early and even right at the beginning. Whereas for Calvin, if you've ever looked through the Institutes, you realize that the doctrine of predestination does not show up until the back end of book three. So well over, or just about halfway through the actual uh, amount of writing that's in there, but even further through uh, in the outline, because book four just takes up a whole lot of bulk uh, dealing with the sacraments and politics and so on. Uh, but putting this uh, difference or trying to drive this wedge between uh, Beza and Calvin gets you back into that debate we talked about in the first video about the relationship of Calvin and the Calvinists. And uh, it's a very fraught and complicated debate. And I said a few words about that in that first video. Now, 
it's hard to say that uh, from a dogmatic location sort of argument about where you put a piece of theology in your outline, it's hard to say on that basis that for Calvin, predestination is uh, the article upon which the church stands or falls or that central uh, doctrine because he puts it so far back in his outline. But it's possible to argue that uh, logically, if not in terms of dogmatic location, but logically, the doctrine of predestination is the basic piece of doctrine for all of Calvin's thinking. In kind of a systematic sense, it's the uh, centerpiece or the center of gravity for everything else that Calvin has to say. Uh, but I don't think that's the case, and Christine Helmer uh, does a really good job in explaining uh, why or elaborating on why. She's not addressing that question directly, but I think it's, uh, her, her comments are very um, related to it. This is an article that she, or a book chapter rather, from her called United and Divided, Luther and Calvin in Modern Protestant Theology, and it's in an edited volume called Calvin and Luther, The Continuing Relationship. But in this uh, piece of work, Helmer argues that um, even or, yeah, Helmer argues that for Calvin and Calvin's Institutes, it's not nearly as systematic as it looks, because it sort of has this comprehensive uh, outline, because it has an outline that fits together very well with different pieces here or there, and it's very um, rational. This outline that Calvin pursues, uh, it looks like it's systematic, but in fact, it's not. And she points out that uh, what you get in the Institutes is a palimpsest, not a system. Now, a palimpsest is when you write something down, and then you come back, and you revise it a bit and add a piece over here, and then you come back later on, and you add another piece over here, and then you come back later on. You write a whole other chunk, but then you break the first chunk up into a couple pieces and start shuffling them all around. That's what Calvin's Institutes was. It went through multiple different editions, and at least three at least three main structures before he finally ended up where he was. And he just kept moving pieces around and expanding and developing it. And he did so very much on the basis of the biblical commentaries that he was writing at the time as he was lecturing through different texts of the Bible. He would work material and expansions in uh, to the institutes. So, uh, Cal and this is quoting Helmer again, Calvin's faithful appeal to biblical evidence seemed to erode the basic criterion for systematicity, which is coherence. In other words, what Helmer is saying is Calvin is so interested in accounting for these different pieces of biblical witness, and he keeps loading things in to this structure in his institutes, that he loses any uh, systematic coherence. It makes it hard to hold it all together systematically. And so you've got lots of folks out there who have dug into Calvin and found little inconsistencies and uh, ways that pieces don't fit perfectly together all the time. And I talked about that inconsistency last time in the second video between describing uh, human beings as blind on the one hand or having just weak vision uh, in Calvin's uh, treatment of the natural knowledge of God. So Helmer's right, and I don't think Calvin was intending to write something systematic, something that was very carefully put together logically and unfolding on a set of principles and, and working hard to be super coherent. I don't think that's what concerned him. Uh, he was writing about the Bible and trying to give you the theology you needed to interpret and understand the Bible. And really, it's a book for pastors. He wants people to be able to read it and preach the Bible. So uh, Calvin's not working primarily in a logically systematic mode. So if he's not doing that, it gets really hard to say that the doctrine of predestination is this logical center for Calvin's thought that everything else depends on. That just doesn't seem historically uh, to be the way that Calvin worked or the way that his mind worked. Uh, and again, it, 
this raises questions of uh, Calvin versus the Calvinists. So later on, if Calvinists are working in this very logically systematic mode with predestination at the center of their thought, that's uh, a kind of departure from Calvin, but also kind of not a departure from Calvin. You have to sort out the similarities and the differences. And then I think a, a final really important consideration is that Calvin didn't even really like the doctrine of predestination. And this is something that I wish people paid more attention to. And uh, what I'm looking for is book three in his institutes, section 23, and then we are, chapter 23, and then we need section seven. He's talking here about the decree of predestination. Calvin says, the decree is dreadful indeed, I confess. The decree is dreadful indeed, I confess. Yet no one can deny that God foreknew what end man was to have before he created him, and consequently foreknew because he so ordained by his decree. In other words, Calvin, uh, feel, he, he says no one can deny, that means he can't deny. Uh, he, he doesn't think anybody else can deny, based on what he has read in the Bible, that God foreknew and God foreordained and so on, and so you get this dreadful decree of predestination. Uh, my personal feeling is that Calvin is quite existentially tangled up with his doctrine of election and predestination. I think he felt compelled to teach it and to maintain it because he saw it in scripture, but that it, kind of, it didn't quite jive with some other aspects of his personality and some other sensitivities that he has uh, from the humanist tradition. So whenever I read Calvin on predestination, I feel like I'm reading this guy who's of two very different minds and trying to negotiate that through his discussion. So uh, just to me personally, it doesn't make a lot of sense for all those reasons to talk about predestination as a central doctrine for Calvin. Well, what's another option? Well, it might be that sanctification is Calvin's central doctrine, and indeed uh, an emphasis on the doctrine of sanctification, on the becoming holy of human beings, on the ethical consequences of the gospel, you might say, is often understood to be a Reformed distinctive within the Protestant tradition. And so a way of distinguishing it from Lutheranism. So you get people saying Luther emphasizes the free grace of God and uh, the Reformed emphasize the ethical consequences of the free grace of God. But uh, it's really oversimplistic. At certain points in time when dealing with uh, the scholastic version of this, uh, these theological traditions, it may have held, uh, but it certainly didn't hold for Luther himself and if you want to find uh, a good treatment of where sanctification has a place in Luther, where the ethical consequences of the gospel fit into Luther, I really recommend this book, Luther on <laughs> Faith and Love. I'm trying to read it backwards on my screen. By Sun-Yung Kim. So Luther on Faith and Love, it's all about Luther's uh, Galatians commentary from 1535, and it elaborates on how uh, this ethical consequence is very much a part of Luther's thought. So we shouldn't overplay this idea that Calvin emphasizes sanctification and Luther does not. Uh, Barth also has something to say about this uh, in his lectures on Calvin. So this is the English translation of Barth's lectures on Calvin. And he's uh, discussing this uh, frequent perception of Calvin as very much an ethicist and perhaps more an ethicist than a uh, dogmatician, a theologian, but Barth has this, as, this to say, just because Calvin was so much an ethicist, 
he had to be such a strong dogmatician. So Bart's telling us to slow down and not get carried away in our discussions of Calvin and trying to separate off this emphasis on sanctification and ethics from uh, more strictly theological questions like soteriology and the doctrine of God and all of these other things. For Bart, ethics and theology are two sides of the same coin. They always go together. And uh, so also for Calvin. So basically, Calvin's not the only one talking about sanctification, and Calvin's not only talking about sanctification. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to lift that up as the centerpiece of all his theology in the sense of the central doctrine. Uh, one other argument that gets made about uh, sanctification being a central doctrine is that Calvin teaches uh, about sanctification before he teaches about justification in book three of the Institutes. He starts in with sanctification. Um, and so some folks have argued, again, if Luther's central doctrine is justification, Calvin puts sanctification first. Maybe sanctification is Calvin's uh, central doctrine. But again, as we saw in our discussions in the first video, um, Calvin follows a teaching order in his discussions in the Institutes, not necessarily a logical order. He's telling people what he thinks they need to hear first, and then he's telling them what he thinks they need to hear second. So it's all about this uh, process of spiritual and theological pedagogy, rather than tracing in a formal way some kind of logical priority. So just because uh, Calvin talks about sanctification before he talks about justification doesn't really tell us much. Uh, he reiterates his point about following a teaching order. Uh, we saw it previously at the end of the very first chapter in book one. He also has it in book two, chapter one, section three, and in book three, sec chapter three, section one, uh, just keeps reiterating this point, I'm following a teaching order. Well, if it's not predestination and it's not sanctification, uh, maybe it is justification after all. I mentioned on Monday that I like to understand Calvin as Luther's disciple, and in fact, when I'm feeling particularly contentious and like I wanna rile up some Lutherans, I say that Calvin was Luther's best disciple. Uh, but if we elevate uh, the doctrine of justification to this, you know, central doctrine for Calvin, that again, just like sanctification, doesn't really tell us much. It doesn't help us to distinguish his unique contribution uh, from Lutherans, and therefore doesn't help us distinguish Reformed theology from Lutheran theology. So traditionally, uh, putting justification into the slot hasn't been particularly attractive. And once again, uh, Bart has something to say about that. So we're back in CD 4.4. In, uh, on page 525. One thing at least is certain, Bart tells us, that if the theology of Calvin has a center at all, Bart's not so sure it does, but if the theology of Calvin has a center at all, it does not lie in the doctrine of justification. So Bart has considered this option and uh, found it unattractive. I agree with them there. But again, uh, talking about justification as a potential contender here does highlight the relationship between Luther and Calvin, which I think is right on track. And we also talked uh, in that connection about Calvin's soteriological concentration and how it's very important in his commentary on the Book of Romans, for instance, which was very important for one of the structures of the Institutes. So I think there's uh, something very important to be said about the significance of justification in Calvin's theology. I'm just not sure that it's a central doctrine.
Another piece that we get uh, that begins to distinguish Calvin a little bit more uh, on the topic of justification is his exchange with Andreas Osiander. Now, Osiander is an interesting figure. He was a very influential reformer, although most people don't know his name, uh, at Nuremberg uh, all through the Reformation period. And after Luther died, Osiander dug into the doctrine of justification and worked to develop it and refine it uh, to answer questions that Luther hadn't uh, addressed fully. And basically what Osiander is asking about is the sort of righteousness uh, that Christians have from Christ. So Luther very famously writes a treatise called Two Kinds of Righteousness, uh, where he talks about the righteousness that God gives and then the righteousness that Christians develop. Uh, Osiander saying, yeah, but there's lots more about what sort of righteousness we're talking about that needs to be settled. Now, Osiander says uh, that the righteousness in question, for both kinds, is an essential righteousness. And you can get Calvin's discussion of uh, Osiander's position in Book 3, Chapter 11, Section 5, and the sections following on after that. It's very interesting. Uh, but basically, how Calvin reads Osiander, Osiander is saying that the uh, righteousness that God gives to Christians through Christ is God's essential righteousness, the righteousness that is proper to God's essence as God. So it's a characteristic of divinity, uh, Calvin worries, that's being passed on to humanity. And then in terms of the human righteousness that is elicited and engendered in the Christian, Osiander says that is also an essential righteousness. It's uh, part of the human essence that is becoming essentially righteous and not tainted by sin in the same way that it was before. And Calvin, on both of these uh, fronts, says, now, hold on a minute, let's put the brakes on this and examine it really carefully. Calvin is not a fan. And uh, I'll say a little bit more about this later on in Calvin's solution. But Calvin makes a real contribution here uh, in developing the doctrine of justification beyond where Luther had left it uh, when he died. So there's a possibility here that if we identify justification as uh, Calvin's central doctrine, it does help us access and understand his unique contribution. But again, it's just one doctrine. It's just one argument with Osiander. There's so much more to Calvin's work. Putting justification at the center point uh, does not, in my opinion, give you enough explanatory power for Calvin's theology as a whole uh, to warrant that kind of elevation. And while I uh, do disagree with Bart on occasion and have published about it, I try not to do it unless I really have to. So uh, what can we say then about Calvin's central doctrine? Does he have one? Does he not have one? I've uh, come to think that he does. And uh, one thing I want to point out as I move to telling you exactly what I think Calvin's central doctrine is, is that all these options that I've gone through, predestination, sanctification, justification, all these doctrines approach the soteriological question from different sides, from different angles. They're all swirling around that soteriological concentration we talked about Calvin having way back in that first video. And I think that's really important because I do believe that Calvin has a, a soteriological concentration, that a certain understanding of salvation is working as a critical norm in his thought and at the center of it. But I think we can specify things further in such a way that elevates the unique contribution that Calvin makes because most of the reformers have a soteriological concentration. Dialectical theology in the 20th century has a soteriological concentration. What exactly is Calvin, 
Calvin's soteriological concentration like? So what I think Calvin's central doctrine is, is pneumatology. It's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now this might come as a surprise to some folks, uh, since Reformed Christians and Calvinists and so on aren't generally folks who uh, talk about the Holy Spirit a whole ton, uh, at least in the way that other uh, popular movements of Christianity these days do talk about it, like Pentecostalism and the Charismatic Movement and so on. Uh, but in fact, I believe that pneumatology and the Holy Spirit are absolutely central to Calvin's theology and really help us understand uh, his unique contribution to theology, as well as gives us a lot of explanatory power for understanding what he's up to. And one of the folks who helped me understand this or helped clarify it in my mind and bring it to the fore in a new way uh, is Willem van Spijker, if I'm pronouncing that right, in his book on Calvin, which I read recently. This is a wonderful introductory text on Calvin. Uh, it's not doing new scholarship or anything like that, but some of his ways of discussing Calvin uh, really uh, sparked some fertile thoughts in my mind, and I appreciated that about his book quite a bit. In here, uh, he talks about what Calvin learns from Luther and what it means to understand Calvin as Luther's disciple. Uh, and basically the argument that he makes that I think he's exactly right is that with Calvin, what happens is you take Luther's doctrine of justification, Luther's soteriology, and you add this concept of union with Christ. And union with Christ, I could have discussed as another option for Calvin's central doctrine. I think it's very, very, very close to being right. The thing you have to understand about Calvin's account of union with Christ is that it's very pneumatological in character. It's all about the Holy Spirit. So you take Calvin's idea of union with Christ, you mix it up with Luther's doctrine of justification, and you get what I would call a pneumatological transposition of Luther's soteriology. So transposing, like in music, where you take a piece of music from one key and put it into the next, Calvin is transposing Luther's doctrine of justification into a pneumatological key, into a key governed by the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So uh, this is what Spitzker has, has to say. Calvin's theological affinity with Luther enabled him to assimilate Luther's reformational discovery and at the same time to read it pneumatologically. So again, that pneumatological transposition of Luther's reformational insight about the doctrine of justification. So if we understand pneumatology filtered through soteriology or in uh, alignment with soteriology, or perhaps we want to say that Calvin's central doctrine is a pneumatological soteriology, however you want to put it, I think this is absolutely central in Calvin's thought. Now, uh, where you see this most clearly, I think, is right at the beginning of book three in Calvin's Institutes. Because what Calvin does there is he very clearly uh, prioritizes the Holy Spirit's uh, place and role at the intersection between God and humanity. The Holy Spirit is very important right there, not in a way that uh, removes Christ, but in a way that complements uh, the role that Christ has as mediator. So uh, here's what Calvin has to say. The question is, how do you receive the benefits which the Father bestowed on his only begotten Son, not for Christ's own private use, but that he might enrich poor and needy men? So Calvin's saying, you've got 
God giving righteousness to Christ, how does that righteousness get to the Christian? First, Calvin says, we must understand, and this is absolutely critical, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. So if there's only this external relation to Jesus, if Jesus is only existing you know, far away in Palestine 2,000 years ago, then he's not doing anything for us. It's soteriologically pointless. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. There needs to be this kind of internal relation. Christ needs to be present in order for what Jesus did to be soteriologically beneficial for us. Now, Christ does this through faith. I have said, uh, Calvin says, that all that Christ possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. So union with Christ's language. And Calvin goes on, it is true that we obtain this by faith. So faith is what unites with Christ. And then if we flip a little bit farther from section 1 in chapter 1 in book 3 over to section 4 in chapter 1 in book 3, we get a very clear statement about uh, the kind of faith we're talking about here. Calvin says, faith, this is right at the beginning, the first line, the first sentence, this is section 4, but faith is the principal work of the Holy Spirit. So Calvin goes on and on about how faith unites with Christ, you have to be united with Christ in order to receive the benefits of Christ and for, in order for Christ to be soteriologically significant. And where does that faith come from? It's the Holy Spirit's job. The main thing the Holy Spirit does is creates faith, is unites Christians with Christ, is makes Jesus soteriologically significant for individuals here and now. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Uh, Calvin describes this as a supernatural gift. And he says that the Spirit is the inner teacher by whose effort the promise of salvation penetrates into our minds. Or again, at the very end of section 1 in chapter 1 in book 3, to sum up, Calvin says, the Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. So the Holy Spirit is right there acting as the glue that binds believers to Christ, that makes Jesus soteriologically significant, to people uh, in every single place and time. And this dovetails really nicely with what we saw from the very beginning of the Institutes, book one, section one, or chapter one, section one, on the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. Remember, I won't read it, look it up and read it to you again because I did it in both of the previous videos. But Calvin says, there's two kinds of knowledge, knowledge of God, knowledge of self. And it's hard to tell which one comes first. Well, the Holy Spirit is the glue that binds together that knowledge of God and knowledge of self, just like the Holy Spirit is the glue that binds together Jesus and the believer here in book three. And so that should clue us in that there are a number of different uh, systematic outworkings of uh, Calvin's doctrine of the Holy Spirit, Calvin's pneumatological soteriological concentration, so to speak. Uh, it keeps popping up at very critical moments. And this is what I think gives it so much explanatory power for understanding Calvin's theology, and it really helps us to grasp 
the um, significance of Calvin's contribution. We're getting at some of the most important stuff that Calvin gave us, some of his most important theological legacies when we understand pneumatological soteriology as his central doctrine. So, for instance, we talked about Scripture in the second video and about how the Holy Spirit is the one who authenticates Scripture to you, that you can't argue people into belief in Scripture. There aren't proofs that you can point to. The Holy Spirit is the one that convinces, and unless the Holy Spirit does that convincing by way of secret inner illumination, uh, was the language that Calvin used, unless the Holy Spirit does that, Scripture is pointless. People will be able to take it or leave it. It's not going to make any bit of difference. Just like Jesus doesn't make any bit of difference unless you are united with Jesus through faith created by the Holy Spirit. So just like with faith and soteriology, just like with Scripture, the Holy Spirit is the glue that holds everything together. And again, uh, the doctrine of justification. If we go to book three, section or chapter 11, we get more discussion of Osiander. Really, that whole uh, chapter, chapter 11, is about Osiander. And uh, Calvin is getting into that issue with essential righteousness we're talking about before. And uh, again, Osiander wants it to be the essence, or the righteousness of God's essence coming to human beings, transforming the human's essence. Uh, into a righteous essence. And Calvin is saying, no, we need to put on the brakes. This contradicts with a number of other commitments that we have as reformational theologians. And so Calvin says, uh, the righteousness that Christ uh, gives to Christians through faith, through the Holy Spirit, is an acquired righteousness. In other words, Jesus lives a perfect human life and is in that way righteous in a human mode. It's a human kind of righteousness, a creaturely kind of righteousness, not the righteousness of God's essence. And so it's that creaturely kind of righteousness that Jesus gives to other creatures, to Christians, uh, to function as their kind of righteousness. And uh, one of the reasons that allows Calvin to make this move is, once again, his pneumatological way of understanding soteriology. So for Osiander, you have to work things out metaphysically. He's going to try to do everything based on on the relation of natures in Christ through a Chalcedonian Christology and how you get the divine nature spilling over into the human nature and vice versa and this kind of thing, communication of attributes or communicatio automatum, idiomatum. He's going to try to work it out metaphysically where Calvin's saying, no, we don't need to do that kind of stuff. It gets us into a lot of complicated stuff that it's really hard to sort out and get right. Uh, maybe we should stay away from that, uh, that left turn and keep going straight and say, the Holy Spirit takes care of it. So Calvin is able to use the Holy Spirit to do work that Osiander and other reform reformational thinkers use uh, metaphysics to do. So where's this passage here? So he faults Osiander, and I'm in section 5 in chapter 11 of book 3. He faults Osiander with getting into all of this kind of speculation, which for Calvin means metaphysics philosophy that's not being done in a Christian way. Indeed, he accumulates many testimonies of Scripture by which to prove that Christ is one with us and we in turn with him, a fact that needs no proof, Calvin says. But because he does not observe the bond of unity, he deceives himself. In other words, Osiander gets right that Christians are united with Christ. What Osiander gets wrong is he doesn't understand how. He doesn't understand what the bond of unity is that does the uniting. Now, it's easy for us to resolve all his difficulties, Calvin says, feeling a little cocky maybe, for we hold ourselves to be united with Christ by the secret power of his spirit. 
So you don't need all of these other metaphysical hoops. You've got the Holy Spirit, Calvin says, to deal with that. So once again, paying attention to the pneumatological character of Calvin's soteriology provides illumination for understanding uh, what he's doing and how he fits in to his context. There's one final example of this explanatory power that I want to get at, and that pertains to the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Uh, if you know much about the Reformation or even just a little bit about it, you know that uh, the Reformed theologians and the Lutheran theologians and the Catholic theologians were all at each other's throats over the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, and specifically over the question of how Christ is present in the Lord's Supper. So the Catholic tradition by this point had officially, more or less, set up the doctrine of transubstantiation, which divides uh, the world metaphysically into essence and accident, and uh, argues that in the Supper, or in the Eucharist, uh, the essence of the bread and the wine are transformed through a metaphysical miracle into the essence of the body and blood of Christ, even though they keep looking like bread and wine. They have the accidents of bread and wine. Luther rejects this and advanced a position that generally gets called consubstantiation. It uses a Christological analogy, just like the divine nature did not remove uh, Jesus's human nature in the incarnation. So in the bread and the wine, the divine, uh, or Jesus's body and blood, the nature and essence of Jesus's body and blood does not remove their nature and essence as bread and wine. It's just added to it so that the body and blood is in, with, and under the bread and the wine. Zwingli comes along then, uh, another Reformed theologian from uh, Switzerland, specifically in Zurich, and he argues that you don't really find uh, enough of a foundation for this in Scripture, and it gets you involved in all kinds of uh, difficulties. And so he says that really what's going on when you do the whole bread and wine business is a memorial. It's a trigger to help you remember in a very powerful way what Christ did for you, and that remembrance has a spiritual benefit. And then also, it allows you to confess before other people publicly that you have Christian faith. So Calvin, all of that happens before Calvin arrives on the scene. And when he does, he surveys the, the, uh, the situation and uh, offers a, uh, what he believes is a solution. And right now I'm working from this collection of essays, or Calvin's Theological Treatises. And the essay in question is his short treatise on the Lord's Supper. At the end of that, he goes through kind of his positive position, but at the end, he kind of starts uh, sorting out this uh, disagreement or this argument that's going on, especially among the Protestants. And he's saying, here's what Luther said, here's what Zwingli said, and Echolampadius and some other folks. Uh, here's what they both get right, here's what they both get wrong. And really what it comes down to for Calvin is the same issue that would pop up again with Osiander. These folks are relying on metaphysics to do work that metaphysics doesn't have to do in Christian theology. So instead of talking about all these different natures and how they relate to each other uh, in these complicated ways and what kind of uh, presence you can talk about on the basis of those relationships and what the different consequences are, Calvin says, forget all of that. We've got a simpler solution. Not to diminish the efficacy of the sacred mystery, Christ's presence. We must hold that it is accompanied by the secret and miraculous virtue of God, and that the Spirit of God is the bond of participation, for which reason it is called spiritual. So Calvin advances the idea that the sort of presence you have of Christ in the Lord's Supper is a spiritual presence. 
the Holy Spirit makes Christ present there. You don't need all of this complicated what happens with the essences business if you just say the Holy Spirit's working. That's Calvin's solution. And interestingly enough, I just read you the last sentence of his short treatise on the Lord's Supper. He literally ends his discussion by saying, the Spirit of God is the bond of participation. Just like in his soteriology, he says that faith is the principal work of the Holy Spirit that unites believers with Christ. So again, I'm convinced that this pneumatological soteriological concentration resides at the center of Calvin's theology, and it has enough explanatory power to account for a lot of the most uh, important contributions that Calvin makes theologically, and it also serves to set him apart from other contemporaries who are working and with whom his thought overlaps considerably. So that's my suggestion to you uh, when it comes to Calvin's central doctrine. I hope I've convinced you, or at least convinced you, that you need to go read Calvin again and uh, spend a bit more time with him. So it's been fun doing this series. Thanks for following along, and we'll see what comes up next.